Welcome to the Lighthouse Conversations. I'm Hashem Montasser. When we started our podcast, our idea was to explore topics of interest with entrepreneurs and tastemakers from the world of arts, culture, tech, and food. Actually, this was an extension of a three-year-old tradition of having physical conversations at the Lighthouse in Dubai Design District. So a couple of weeks ago, we went back to our roots, so to speak, and sat down with UAE Minister of State, Zaki Noseba, to talk about arts and culture, him being our first live conversation since launching the podcast. Zaki is a polygot, a voracious reader, and an art collector way before art collecting was fashionable. So in many ways, he's a true Renaissance man. The last time I met Zaki, we had lunch at the Lighthouse shortly after we opened three years ago, and he told me about his childhood in Jerusalem and the various journeys him and his siblings chartered in their lives, and I was instantly hooked. Zaki was born in Jerusalem to a renowned family that's considered the closest to Palestinian royalty. In fact, his ancestors accompanied the first caliph, Omar ibn al-Khattab, to Jerusalem over 1,500 years ago during the Arab Islamic capture of the city. He remembers the city being incredibly tolerant during his childhood. I was at a school called St. George's, which is an, even, uh, an Anglican uh, church school, and it had its choir at school. And it was an, uh, in an environment where you didn't know what religion was. We knew we were Muslims. We had friends who were Christian, who were Jewish, who were different, uh, different sects of Islam and Christianity. But having a friend sit next to you at school called Salim or Ali or Basim, you really didn't know whether he was Christian or Muslim, and it never came into our minds. So this was the kind of spirit. spirit of the place. But again, because of the churches that it has, because of the mosques, of course, the Dome of the Rock, uh, the Masjid al-Aqsa, the Aqsa Mosque, uh, there was a lot of music in those days, the music of, that you heard in the churches, again in the choirs, but also a number of active cultural centers for the foreign uh, embassies or consulates that were in Jerusalem that brought consuls, consuls to Jerusalem. I remember, as an example, the British consul in those days, and unfortunately it stopped doing it, used to have libraries. And you used to go and, and, and be able to get books to read because books were not easy to sure. have access to in those days. And, uh, and I remember one of the first things uh, I saw there as a film, black and white, was Great Expectations, and it blew my mind as a young boy. So the family, we grew up there. I went to school in England, uh, and then 67, the break, the war of 67, I couldn't go back to Jerusalem, so I came to Abu Dhabi. But that's a you know a whole story. And, and all itself. your siblings, most of you, different, went to different places. places. So my younger brothers were still studying. Uh, they went on studying for a while. In fact, in, in, in all of my brothers got scholarships from Sheikh Zayed, with whom I was working. So my family, in a way, was taken over by Sheikh Zayed uh, here in Abu Dhabi. Uh, and uh, and then they did different things. So I had a brother who came, two of them came to work here, uh, one in oil, uh, one in government relations, who then went back to do his uh, PhD uh, in Islamic philosophy, and then uh, is, went back to Jerusalem, established the Arab University of Jerusalem, and still lives there. 
another brother uh, came here again to work with an oil company uh, then went with total uh, and he actually became a french citizen and uh, a general manager or president of total and then uh, and then he settled in paris and he lives now between paris and abu dhabi and he's retired but a third brother actually studied islamic philosophy for his phd and then became a banker and when he became a banker like you an investment bank ex-banker now <laughs> i told him many years ago why did you choose uh, banking he said because i knew that you are in london you're going to ask me you know what job are you do you want me to look for you for and i i, I had looked in the times supplement the, that morning and i saw that a teacher at oxford university and seven thousand pounds a year but a banker and 12,000. <laughs> He's right. So he went into banking. Then he settled into London, actually, in London, uh, married and lives in London. So as a family, yes, we are spread out. I have also two sisters, lived both of them in Jordan, one of them an artist who went to New York, lived in New York, came back, another sister who settled now in Jordan. So it's a spread out family. So when we were making choices about your own career, obviously, if did this family history in any way impact that your choices? Because you had obviously many choices. You came to Abu Dhabi. Um, Abu Dhabi was wide open at the time. And you had a number of options, but you pursued the options you did. Explain to us a little bit, did the family history part impact you or were there were you very clear from the beginning about the choice you wanted to make? No, I think it's family history, you know, in, in, to, to a large extent, because we have always been, we have not, we have always been either government or academic or judges or uh, uh, lawyers or government civil servants. Um, uh, my father was the ambassador in London. He was minister. Uh, so, I mean, to that extent, that, that for me, it was somewhere there, my interest. But in fact, from very young, from that very day, I went to the British Council and, and uh, saw uh, great expectations in black and white. And then I read I, the novels of George Zidane, I remember as a young boy. You know, George Zidane uh, is an Arab author who's written a series of history books. He's almost like a Sir Walter Scott. Uh, and it's all based on Islamist Arabic history, recounting Harun al-Rashid, the assassins, but always in an in an amazing uh, with amazing facility. And I loved it. I mean, I loved reading. And then, of course, the poetry. We at school, St. George's, we used to have a teacher who is the best teacher we ever did have, who taught us Arabic modern romantic poetry and so i mean that was always reading books and the poetry came back in your life later on because it you translated you know some poetry yes and... i mean poetry has has been from the outset one of my great passions and i think with our arab heritage for us poetry is something that is embedded in our dna i mean we enjoy poetry i know that sheikh zayed for instance who never did have any formal education in fact, I learned classical Arab heritage through the poetry of the great uh, Jahiliya poet, Al-Mutanabbi. He used to quote Al-Mutanabbi extensively and ask us about the meaning of words. I mean, he tested us to see who knew uh, which word. 
so that was I mean I when I came out I came out because of the six day war because my parents had gone back uh, to Jerusalem uh, and I because of the war I could not go back and we had a, a relationship with the Emirates my father knew both Sheikh Shakhbut and Sheikh Zayed he'd received in fact when I was still at Cambridge in England I Sheikh Zayed was in London in the summer before he became ruler and he came to dinner in the embassy residence in London and I met him but I, I had so no your father. idea yeah through the father but I had no idea that you would be that there. my life my destiny is going to be in Abu Dhabi but in 67 after it was June that I came down uh, as they say the war had broken up so my father said why not go to Abu Dhabi we had a company here that was just about opening uh, because Sheikh Zayed had just become a ruler he was developing some major uh, contracts in Abu Dhabi and they said go out uh, and try your luck I came but did not really feel attracted to, that to working in contracting or accounting or selling iron rods and so I drifted into journalism. I was going to say, so you started with journalism. I drifted into journalism. You know, in those days, there was one hotel uh, called the Beach Hotel. It was the only place in town which was a watering. Uh, the Sheraton now? or what's It's the Sheraton yeah. place hotel now. Yeah. And it's uh, the only place that had air conditioning. I mean, we used to live in prefabricated kind of units, sometimes had electricity, often not, even in summer. But the hotel was the only place that had both electricity, air conditioning, and company. And in those days, a lot of editors, foreign editors, Arab editors, were passing through Abu Dhabi because they were interested in two things. One was to see what are the new economic, you know, uh, big projects that Sheikh Zayed is going to announce. And so that was big news internationally. But also because they were worried uh, once Britain announced that it will withdraw from the Gulf, there'll uh, be a vacuum. That there will be a power vacuum, yeah. and therefore a security issue. And they wanted to cover what was happening, but it was not important enough to have uh, reporters actually resident in Abu Dhabi. So it was natural to ask me to become a stringer, which means you write a story. If they publish it, they pay you per okay. piece. And I remember, for instance, the first piece I did was about Abu Dhabi's five-year plan, 68 to 72. I sent it to the Financial Times. I got 10 pounds, uh, which was a lot of money in those days. But also, you could rewrite that story into four or five different forms uh -huh. and then send it to Agence France Press <laughs> and to Reuters and to The Economist. So it's and not just your brother, the banker, that knew how to make money. A little, a little to survive. I mean, in those right. days, it was survival. Uh, and did you feel that the way you were covering the stories as an Arab and someone that grew up in the region was different than some of those foreign correspondents or not correspondents at the time, but that came and told a similar story, for example, because, about the five-year plan? Yes, because I mean, I, I got very rapidly to know everybody because in those days Abu Dhabi was a small village really by the sea and the decision makers were few in numbers and it was enough to say I am financial times and all doors would open to you and then I met everyone uh, within a month or two and of course living there knowing the history before going out uh, and from the time that I met Sheikh Zayed in London I mean, I was obviously fascinated by the man and his history, and I had started even then to read 
a lot of the books about the region, uh, Arabian Sand, Wilfred Thesiger, The Golden Bubble. I mean, there are a number of books that I read. And so when I came out, I was well uh, introduced both to the region, its history, the tribal history, the stories of Abu Dhabi and Dubai and the Emirates, and I found it all fascinating. Were there Was there documentation and writing that was coming from the region? I mean, I'm just contrasting growing up in Egypt and remembering, I started reading some parts of the especially more modern history of Egypt only when I left and went to the States, because in Egypt, you had very particular and subjective kind of coverage, I'm not saying outside it wasn't subjective, but it didn't exist. Did you experience something similar well, at the time? There was very little that was written from this region. So one of, as I mean, me almost immediately, I became Sheikh Zayed's interpreter in 1968, uh, and then uh, media director. And one of the first things we had to do is to go and find the history so that we can publish it as right. a department of information. And of course, then you had to go to the Lorimer Gazetteers, you had to go to the British documents to start finding the, the archives, the archives about the tribal history, and then to revise them. You see, there was a lot of oral history then. So we had to go and research the actual archival uh, docu uh, history, then come to Sheikh Zayed, uh, and, and this is the Department of Information, and actually work out what was uh, factual and what was not. And so a lot of the work we did in those years, early days, I remember, was researching the history and publishing them as publications of the Department of Information. And in those days, we had to go to Beirut to do everything. You know, if you needed publishing. To, to publish, because there were no printing presses, there was of no course, print. here. I mean, I remember when we started our first Arabic newspaper, Al-Ittihad, we would assemble photographs, articles, then send them to Beirut so that they're printed there, then wait for the uh, Middle East airline to bring them back. And so the newspaper came initially in two, uh, edi two editions a week, it was a bi-weekly. And the first English newspaper I started called Abu Dhabi News was here. once a week here. And what then it became Emirates News. It was 69 or so. And it was a general newspaper covering various... But I mean, few pages and covering. It was really still then elementary kind of journalism. And then, of course, that developed over the years. Let me transition for a minute here, talk just about uh, your interest in art. So that's, a, you have a, you know, multi-decade relationship with art that's in some cases well told before, but I'm interested in your particular relationship with art because it's not only just collecting art. I mean, obviously, that's one aspect that you enjoy. Uh, and we just talked now, uh, we were talking about, for example, some of your um, pieces from your collection that were exhibited in NYU Abu Dhabi as part of one of the professor's curated exhibition for his students. So your relationship with art goes beyond collecting into what is it? Is it the learning? Is it the, the interacting with it? What, what, what draws your interest? You here? know, I, I love the German language and the Germans have a, a real knack to put words together. They build a word out of three different words to give the full meaning of what they want to say. And I love one of the words that is a compound word is what Richard Wagner, uh, as an opera composer, described his operas. And he called it a, a Gesamtkunstwerk, which really means a whole art 
work. I want to say sorry. I went to German school, so I can verify it's correct. <laughs> <laughs> so a Gesamtkunstwerk, what he wanted to, to say by that is that he's not just composing an opera. He's not just composing music. He's not just, com he's actually writing poetry. He's a philosopher. I mean, this is how he showed the, the, his work. And for me, if I am to invent a, a, and became Gesamtkunstwerk became accepted in English language as a kind of term, term in, in the aesthetics of a whole work that brings in different aspects, uh, not only just one aspect. And to me, if I want to describe my relationship with art, I would call it a Gesamtkunsterfahrung, which experience. means experience. It's really the, the experience is not just one side of it, one aspect of it. So clearly, it's a, the, everything that goes with the with art. So it's the enjoyment of looking at it. It's the enjoyment of uh, meeting people who are creative and create this art uh, in front of you. It's the enjoyment of learning about it. It's the enjoyment of, sharing of discussing it. Well. it. Right. And it's the enjoyment of sharing it because in the end, no art should exist, you know, in, in, in a kind of monastery, although it's all right in a monastery if you can go and visit, but it should really be shared by all. This is why I personally love museums. I love museums when they don't charge people because I think access should be free. But I also think that even private collections should be open collections. I mean, art is something for everybody to enjoy, to appreciate, and to learn from. So art is not just a question of having uh, something on your wall, but it's all the feeling that goes with it, a Gesamtkunsterfahrung. When we come back, Zaki tells us about the various stages of being an art collector and what it means to him. We will also take some questions from the audience. Stay with us. Welcome back. You're listening to the Lighthouse Conversations and our live episode with Minister of State Zaki Noseba. Before the break, Zaki was telling us about the impact art had on him, the overall experience, which is in German named Gesamtkunsterfahrung, and why he feels all art should be public. I mean, I again think that art speaks to you. In the, you cannot just enjoy everything and you do not react in the same way to everything that you see. And of course, I went through several phases. Uh, first, when you enjoy art, you enjoy everything. Sure. I mean, I remember as a schoolboy, I was still at rugby school in England, and I went to Paris, maybe 16, maybe 15. And my sister was studying at the Ecole de Beaux-Arts as a painter herself. And I remember in those days, the Impressionist art was in a, the museum called Jeux de Pomme, which was in the Jardin des Tuileries. Now it has the Monet uh, Water Lilies series, but then it was Impressionist and it was Rodin, the, 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 the thinker and the kiss. And I, again, I remember when I saw those in Paris, it just blew my mind. And from then, you know, you go to enjoy all, all, all kinds of arts. I mean, in London was beautiful. Cambridge had, of course, uh, the Fitzwilliam Museum, which had uh, everything uh, from Rembrandt to Rubens. And when you transition to look at Arab art. But this is what I want to yeah. say. So this is the first phase is when you go and look and enjoy art and you try to learn about art generally. 
And then when you start wanting to have your own collection, I mean, I initially went for Orientalists. And in those days, I'm talking about the 60s, it was not expensive. Uh, and I collected some because I wanted to have around me some art that, uh, you know, is uh, related to my region and an art that speaks to me. And then I was taken up by modern uh, Middle East art. So I sold when it became because it, it becomes actually when when art becomes so expensive it's almost obscene i mean i don't think that art i think art should always remain available accessible to people so anyway i sold what i had and i started buying modern and contemporary uh, middle east or manasa if you like art and of course since coming here uh, this has been really my focus is to get art from Manasseh, from the region, from starting with the Gulf, with the Emirates, with the region, with the Middle East, but with India, Southeast Asia, to look at art that talks to us. And the UAE, as you know, has 200 nationalities that live and work and uh, create uh, creatively uh, live together here. And so you, you, have, you have all of this to talk to you. And this is really my focus now. It's, it's have it's you kind found of anything particular that speaks to you within? I mean, it's now a a larger body of work in terms of both modern contemporary art, in the Middle East. I mean, for example, I, I find myself drawn to particular eras. Some cases, the pre sixty seven era in Egypt, for example. Maybe it's nostalgic. I'm not sure. Maybe it's freezing certain memories. But have you found in your sort of interest a particular era or line speaking to you? Uh, you know, for me. I look at the whole sweep of this this art development from modern, well, there's Egypt, of course, we have some great artists, uh, Iraq, of course, that has some great artists, Syria. And we notice that a great deal of this art is started being based on calligraphy, Rufiyat, using the, the, the letters of the alphabet, initially as sentences and subsequently as abstract and conceptual. But it's, and it's all in one way or another, a reflection on our social mores, on our history. So a lot of it is political. And I, I cannot say that I like one phase more than the other. I, you know, I, whether you get a Gergesian in order to look at the ideas of the Trinity and motherhood and, and sadness or, Kayali, uh, you know, those hauntingly lonely individuals whether it's a little girl or a player uh, or an instrument player or has him harmed when he goes and looks at uh, those old um, you know posters uh, of uh, palestinian uh, innocence and then puts superimposes things on them so i cannot say one phase and not the other but a lot of it i would say iranian art I mean, you know, if you have Farhad Mushiri, these classical jars that are both part of our heritage because it's classical, it has poetry. Normally, he writes poetry on it. And then you read something like one, the one particular one I love is where he, where it's a woman who says, or it's a woman who puts her shoulder, her head on his shoulder, weeping, saying, I love you no more. And you want to know, you know, if she doesn't love him no more, why is she weeping and why is her head on? That kind, you know, it talks to you. Sure. Uh, Muhammad Qasim, some of his latest series about 
the conditions of labor in the Emirates. I mean, these dark shadows that you do not see because they're out of the light. Hassan Sharif and his, you know, uh, almost crazy ideas yeah, that he has been able to develop from the 80s and uh, now recognized, recognized some of the, more uh, lately, yes. So all of this, all of this is, is interesting for me in equal terms. And how do you connect these dots in terms of your own interests? Because I know you read a lot. You've also taught yourself many languages, right? How many languages, just for the record? Seven, seven. seven. I can only test you on four. Anyway, <laughs> I want to. Um, so, how do you connect these dots? Because I think it's also a very important consideration when we think about, you know, um, students and children today growing up, and how do we build all of the ecosystem together? Because it's not one or the other. It's not you know what to just makes have art. us human. You have to have all these pieces. Fact, how do you connect those is dots? Our propensity to tell stories and to enjoy storytelling. So. You know, from the from from being a baby, how how does a baby learn? A baby learns by listening to stories and sounds. So everything connects. The language is sound. This is what makes us uh, human beings. It gives us language, and then it gives us the ability to be uh, storytellers, weavers of dreams, and then those dreams become our own. So if you start reading, and I mean, as children, when we start reading those stories, whether it's Alice in Wonderland or, uh, you know, you start having images in your own mind about uh, the, the events that take place, uh, uh, about uh, Red Riding Hood and that bad wolf. That's... And then from those images, your, your, your mind grows, you know, you develop uh, this is this is a gift that we are endowed with. It's genetically embedded in us, where storytelling is the way that our lives uh, grow, and 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 and, and we, we're able to to branch out, to learn, to absorb from music to art to storytelling to poetry, to architecture, enjoying to enjoying nature, to enjoying the sound of water uh, spring or the sound of birds and all of this is storytelling i mean we really are humans in that we are storytellers and that we really learn by listening to stories or recounting those stories now an artist would tell you a story uh, chopin uh, will tell you a story through his music uh, faust would tell you a uh, goethe would tell you a story through his his theater and so forth this is the connecting, I, I believe, personally, and this is how I brought up my children always, to induce in them very young, as children, the love, and I'm sure all parents do this with their children, they induce in their children storytelling. I mean, you interest your child in, 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 in life by, by, by telling him a story or 100%. her a story, and then you induce them to read because you want them to enjoy this storytelling and to weave their own dreams or to enjoy the weaving of dreams by others. I mean, you saw the findings that were made uh, recently about rock art in Australia. 44,000 years ago, this is when man was pre-Neolithic, I don't know what they are, or Paleolithic, or whatever term there is, but this is 44,000 years ago, when uh, pre that man was still a hunter-gatherer, so agriculture has not developed, and yet, 
they spent all their time scavenging for food and yet they were able to draw these designs on walls and 44,000 years ago of animals that had human heads and obviously again it's a way of telling a story so there is a need there is an embedded need in our genetic and makeup. obviously some of the artists spoke about earlier are also artists wanting to tell their own story I mean Hazen is a case in point but you know wanting to tell their story or at least appropriate the narrative for themselves and tell a version of that story. And I think every form of art is storytelling, you know, whether it's music, whether it's a novel, whether in, in a novel, in a poem, every, every work of art, every creative work of art is in fact a telling of a story. So what can um, parents and, and teachers and others do to to promote that type of storytelling, because when you look at today's curriculum, I'm not talking about the UE necessarily, cross, sometimes you find those things lacking and these things are also taught in isolation as opposed to being connected. What do you think can be done about that? The first thing is take away all these iPads and... Uh, and uh, it's a tall order. It's <laughs> to be order. difficult. I mean, iPads become very useful at some stage, but and these games, these electronic games, because I think the first, the first duty of any parent really is i believe through storytelling to in, to really inspire the child's imagination because it's the imagination that makes a child grow so you need to really inspire you need to fire that imagination and you can only do this through inducing into your you know the young 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 children this love for storytelling story reading and not show them films of i mean i'll i'll tell you uh, for instance uh, lord of the rings when you read a story to children is that uh, you give them one kind of ability to imagine what is happening but you show them the cartoon and suddenly there is no imagination because everything They're is put on it. before them so it's really how do you inspire enrich a child's imagination i mean my children i used to take to school and recount stories to them like a thousand and one nights ending every time at a cliffhanger so that they will be waiting for me to for the next take night. them back to continue with that story and there are so many stories to tell children and then as they grow i believe the importance of letting them you know visit museums and listen to music and and this is one of the great things that uh, the leadership here has accomplished is to begin opening all these museums around us because a child that goes to a school and learns in a curriculum about culture or art is not a full student he must go to a museum he must see things uh, and he must really enjoy them uh, and teachers well i'm you know this is uh, bring culture art teach children how to really, again, enrich the imagination. Always the question of enriching a person's imagination. To that point about culture uh, production here in the UAE, as you said, the first chapter was obviously building the infrastructure. Many museums have opened art galleries. That was top down for the most part. And now you're seeing also over the last 10 years, let's say, a bottom up movement as well several movements, Al-Sirkel, Aminam is with us here, and others have really spearheaded this movement that's more organic, and there's an interplay between the top-down government-led and the organic. How does that play out going forward? Okay, I think 
to begin with, I mean, let's just to put some something out of uh, into context that there was always also organic social uh, involvement in art. Sure. I mean, so when we talk about uh, the, for instance, the Hassan Jarif group uh, that in the 80s created a society, Sand Castle, that met together with poets and they, they included poets and painters. So there was always a social, uh, organic, if you like, movement. Uh, but of course, in a place like the UAE, which really started on a marvelous journey 50 years ago. I, you know, I always uh, tell people who come to visit here, you need to look at a record of what existed 50 years ago to see and to appreciate what was accomplished uh, in such a short span of time. And it's not a question of oil money because oil is abundant in Libya and oil is in Iraq and oil is in Nigeria. So it's a, a number of things that work. No, there together. has to be a will and an interest, and and a, and good governance and 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 passionate leadership and and responsible, you know, leaders with the sense of responsibility and so forth. But the basic, I would say, first forty years were focused on 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 building the infrastructures that were badly needed, including roads. I mean, the airport in Dubai, the first one I came to was a small building where you could see it, you know, you walk from one end to the other and you look at Dubai's airport today. But at the same time, the next, if you like, phase of development is one where the focus is really on education, creating a society of knowledge and culture as an integral part of education. And this is where you need governments from up downwards to invest. And this has happened, you know, throughout history. So the great collections of the world, whether it's in Florence or in Venice or in Paris, or, they were all started by either royal families or uh, leaders or emperors. Or, and this is something that the, leader, the government in the UAE is doing now. I mean, in Sharjah, they've been doing it since the 90s of the last century with the Biennale that has taken off as an amazing landmark international on the global art seat, the museums, 24 museums. And then the big museums that in Abu Dhabi were envisaged within the cultural center on Saadiyat. I mean, a really major, major investment. And that has brought in true international global awareness of the region in terms of art and culture. So whereas I would say, in the law, in the first art in the West was always considered from a Western centric perspective. That is something that develops in Paris and London and Los Angeles, but nothing possible in Cairo or New Delhi or now that perspective has changed. All these directors of museums who come here have seen that there is an exciting, robust, uh, uh, an imaginative art, both modern and contemporary here and in the region because the emirates straddles a wide strategic uh, and and therefore there is the interest from uh, global but then this is not enough as you said because in the end the only way it becomes alive is when from bottom from society society itself the social entrepreneurs People also take come in and this is something that Al-Sirkal has done in a major way and, you know, really kudos to him and 
because he created a cultural hub that is independent of government control in the heart of the city. And it has become internationally recognized. He had a Bauhaus building that nearly won the Aga Khan Prize. Prize. Galleries that have opened. Now, here, what is happening in Dubai is particularly exciting because I think traditionally, Dubai was always had a stronger entrepreneurial community. Abu Dhabi was more government and is more government fixated. But it's a good... Sure, it's, like it's, it's a good balance as well. Yeah, absolutely. Abu Dhabi can invest in those big museums that we are having, the Louvre, the Guggenheim, the Zayed National Museum, later perhaps the Maritime. And, you know, to have a museum of universal uh, stature like the Louvre is not a small no. achievement. And this drives also the cultural scene, but it also drives social community to become more involved because governments are bureaucrats are never good cultural sars. you need uh, the local community to become the real actors and we have that i mean we're beginning to have this but i still believe that it is important for governments to invest i mean even today people don't realize that 80 percent of new museum of museums in the world were built past 1980 so big cities in the world go recognize on that. recognizing Absolutely. that Absolutely. we need to spend on culture. Unfortunately, when you have now government budgets and accountants who want to save money, sometimes they forget that investing in culture is long term, but it is a major driver for sustainable development. It was truly inspiring getting Minister Zaki's perspective on how the region continues to build its own narrative and use its rich history as a launching pad. We also received some interesting questions from the audience. For example, one member of the audience wanted to know how Sheikh Zaid acted as a patron for arts and culture, even beyond the borders of the UAE. In 1969, as an example, but after that, uh, he, he, Sheikh Zayed used to go to Geneva. We used to go to Geneva. He would spend the summer and he would spend the time there. And the first, the first time, I mean, and he loved seeing it because it was beautiful, of course, nature, which he loved, the water, the green. And the first thing he said there is to bring a team of performers uh, to the University of Geneva. Uh, there was a professor he knew of the region, Simon Jarji. Simon Jarji. And so I got to know him. And then we brought over a whole team of Ayala dancing and music players. And they performed on the stage at the University of Geneva. And I remember bringing them with me. They were very young performers. And as we drove from airport in a bus into Geneva, uh, one of them told me, you know, I read a lot of description of heaven in the Quran. And now that I see this around me, I can see what heaven is like. And interestingly, Sheikh Zayed then created the same kind of lake with the water spring that comes from the middle in Al Ain near Al Mubazzara. But so for Sheikh Zayed, he was always interested in showing what we had as a cultural heritage everywhere he went. In 1969, again, and before we had infrastructure in Al Ain, he asked us to build the first museum, archaeological museum, uh, which stands there today, although it's being renovated now, in order to show the archaeological finds from Healy and Umminar about the communities who lived here four and 5,000 years ago, traded with the Indus Valley, with Mesopotamia, 
created beautiful pottery. He wanted to tell a story, and the story is about the people of the UAE. You know, do not come here just looking, thinking this is an oil uh, patch that has discovered oil, and therefore there is no history, or there is no heritage, or there is no tradition. So Sheikh Zayed was very keen on making sure that our heritage and our traditions live with us, and then that we also expose them to the world that is coming to either live with us or work here. Another one asked him what kind of stories Minister Zaki himself is drawn to and what role storytelling plays in forming an identity. You know, very, very good questions, of course. I, what is storytelling to me? Uh, what kind of storytelling? My whole life is built, if you like, around storytelling. So... I look at everything in terms of a story that is either being recounted to me or of something that I am trying to read, whether that is in going to a Wagner opera, to the ring, or going to uh, to a theater, going to the globe and listening to Shakespeare, reading a novel, reading a poem. Everything for me tells me a story. And I, 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 I you know, it goes through my mind the whole time. When I try to sleep at night, I, I I go through a storytelling phase in order to go to sleep. So everything, everything to me I go through is is, is a question of storytelling. Uh, even films I see, I try to make into a story, then live through them. Uh, and I believe that this is really, really the secret of our, if you like, being enthralled by anything we go to, whether it's a film or a or a theater or an opera or reading a novel or even reading science fiction that I really am also passionate about. But we don't realize that it's storytelling, but th this is the way that we, our imagination is nourished. Now, what about identities? Identities, of course, are important. And uh, through reading, through we talked about heritage, and we talked about the need to keep your uh, social roots, your heritage, your traditions, but there is always a thin line and the dangerous one between identity as part of an enriching, uh, you know, overall com com component of your personality, or as a debilitating one, because it pushes you into a bubble that then seeks to isolate itself from the other, or starts to look askance as the other, or disrespect for the other. So how can we manage to have an identity that is important, a Palestinian? I mean, they ask me, what do you feel yourself as an identity? And I say, I'm an Emirati who is born in Jerusalem. You know, I spent all my life and all my work in the Emirates, and I am born in Jerusalem and have family traditions that go back there 1,500 years. And that is easy when you look at it as something that is complementing each other. It becomes dangerous when you fox yourself into saying, I am a Shiite, uh, or I am a, a, a Durzi, or I am a, 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 simply a, in the sex, different sex, a Maronite, an Orthodox, a Catholic. And I think this is the dangerous line that we need to we seek. Identity seeking is important, but at the same time, we need always to learn how to be open to the others. And Interestingly enough, you can only do this when you are confident of your own identity. I'm just going to interject, and the story you told us at the beginning is so telling. You know, the fact that, uh, you know, essentially a Muslim family 
was holding custody to the keys of a holy church in Jerusalem. So that's sort of again another story and so very it's telling an identity about identity. You have the two. You know, the identities yeah. can become. Amin Maruf called them the deadly identities in one of his books because this is what led Lebanon into the civil war and is leading Lebanon, you know, into the nightmare that it has been. So this is Lebanon as a country, really. Uh, for all those who knew it, and I knew it in the 60s when it was, a, we called it the Paris, the Switzerland of the Middle East. We went there to buy books in the in the bookshops and to meet the, you know, the writers and the poets and political parties of all hues. And yet as they started bringing themselves more and more narrowly into their own identities, uh, it, it, it was a path to disaster. So we have to keep this balance between the two. And lastly, a young member of the audience wanted to know what advice Zaki had for aspiring journalists. As a journalist, I think the first thing is to be passionate about your work because you are telling a story. And, you know, human nature is all about telling a story. And journalists are people who go out in order to report on things happening, whether it's in politics or in economics or in uh, history, and they tell a story. And then, of course, to be literate. I mean, you need to develop your uh, linguistic abilities to the extent where you can express yourself uh, in the best forms that are available to you. And then you have to become knowledgeable. Uh, about uh, anything you want to work with. And that means really reading up regularly. I used to tell my daughters when they were at school, read The Economist every week, read Newsweek and Times, and you, are, you, will, you will keep abreast of what's happening around the world. So you have to read and to be knowledgeable about uh, everything you do. And then you have to network because journalism depends on networking. You have to have your sources, you have to have your access, you have to have the trust and confidence of people who are uh, in charge. Develop all of those together and you will become a great journalist. Technology should not be used as a shortcut. Read the serious, I mean, take a newspaper, and the Independent, the Guardian, the Times, any, any of those papers, the New York Times and a great paper. Uh, take a magazine, Newsweek and Time, and The Economist. Take uh, a Times literary supplement. Learn about new books. You really need to read. In order to be a journalist, you read, really to read and read and read. A, that improves your own language. B, it teaches you how to express yourself because there is a style for journalism, how to produce a paragraph, where to start it with, how to end your paragraph and then knowledge, knowledge, and networking. I think on that note, uh, we'll have to end it. Thank you so much, uh, Your Excellency, for coming today and for joining us. Many more stories to tell. So, inshallah, there'll be a sequel well, soon. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for coming. As always, thank you for joining us on the episode of The Lighthouse Conversations with me, Hashem Montasser, as your host. The Lighthouse Conversations is produced by Chirag Desai. You can listen to all our episodes for free in your favorite podcast player and on the web at thelighthouse.ae slash podcast.